Diary of an Arcade Employee Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and since this is October, it felt more than appropriate to discuss Capcom's 1985 side-scrolling platformer, Ghosts and Goblins. Known as Demon World Village in its native country of Japan, Ghosts and Goblins was produced and developed for Capcom by the legendary Takaru Fujiwara. Man, I hope I'm not butchering his name. I have no issue saying that Takaru is a legend much like his fellow Capcom designer, Yoshiki Okamoto, who I talked about on the 1942 Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. Tokaru had a hand in designing or producing such titles as Puyan, Volgus, Commando, the 1988 sequel to Ghosts and Goblins entitled Ghouls and Ghosts, Strider, and that is just some of the arcade games. Check out his legacy on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mega Man 2 and 3, Destiny of an Emperor, Willow, DuckTales, Gargoyles Quest, Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers, just to name a few. Ghosts and Goblins, besides being legendary itself, as it's considered one of the hardest arcade titles to beat, more on that in just a bit, but it also has an amazing soundtrack by Ayako Mori and Harumi Fujita. We talked a bit about Ayako's work on that 1942 podcast as well, but Fujita also has quite a resume, working mostly on Takaru titles like the arcade version of Bionic Commando and Strider, as well as the arcade beat-em-up Final Fight, and then scoring the music for everything from Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers to Todd McFarlane's Spawn, the video game for the NES and Super Nintendo. Friends, it really is kind of funny. With all of the amazing memories I have of my local showbiz pizza, I seem to keep picking the games to discuss that I didn't originally play there. My first experience with Ghosts and Goblins was at a nearby gas station, although where I played it most was on the NES. Total weekends were spent at one of my friends' house as we just kept trying to beat the game, failing to do so again and again and again. But while it's a daunting task to complete the game, the elements are mixed together so well that players come back over and over again. Speaking of that gameplay, Ghosts and Goblins tasks one to two players taking turns with filling the armored sabatons of Sir Arthur, a brave knight who, while enjoying a peaceful late-night rendezvous with his love, Princess Prinprin, at the nearby cemetery, which is weird, is attacked by a winged messenger of Satan, the king of the underworld. That dastardly messenger, besides knocking Sir Arthur to the side, also abducts Princess Prinprin, whisking her away to Astaroth's castle which is something we actually learned in the home ports. Astaroth was the name given to the character of Satan in the home versions. Sir Arthur quickly dons his armor, because he was actually just lounging around in his boxer shorts, and screws his courage to the sticking place as he attempts to defeat the six fearsome generals, or bosses, guarding the gateways to reach and slay Satan, or Astaroth, winning the freedom of Princess Prinprin. The player, with the aid of the joystick, allowing movement up and down, left and right, 
also has two buttons that allow Sir Arthur to jump in a desired direction, and an attack or fire button that lets the brave knight throw or toss his currently held weapon. Real quick, when Sir Arthur picks up a new weapon, he loses his old one. The types of weapons he will encounter throughout the game include the lance, which he hurls like a spear. It will travel across the screen until it hits an object or enemy. This is the weapon you actually start the game with. There is also the dagger, which behaves just like the lance but can be thrown quicker. Then there is my least favorite weapon in the game, the flame torch, which when thrown travels in an arc. If it does make contact with the ground and not, say, an object like a tombstone, it will set the ground on fire in anything that walks through it. Also, you can only toss two of these at a time. Now to be quite fair, it's probably my lack of skill that makes this my least favorite weapon, as I've seen some players at Arcadia really dish out the punishment with it. Our brave knight can also get his hands on a hand axe or hatchet that also travels in an arc when thrown. Of course, unlike the flame torch, it's not going to leave a wall of fire. Just like the flame torch, you can only have two on screen at one time. Finally, there is the shield, or the cross as it's sometimes called. It acts like the lance and dagger in so much as you start shooting a shield out when pressing in the fire button, but it will not travel nearly as far. It does, however, have the ability to stop enemy fire if it comes in contact with them, which is pretty nice. And you absolutely must use it at the end of the game when you wage your battle against Satan or Astaroth. If you don't have the shield when you go into the sixth and final stage of the game, it will actually send you back to the fifth stage to pick it up, and you will have to fight your way back once again. Not to mention, hope you don't accidentally pick up another weapon in its place and have to rinse and repeat. I think I should mention that one of the reasons this game is considered so darn hard is that the battle with Satan, even if you have the shield and happen to wipe the floor with him, you will feel that feeling of victory turn to ash in your mouth as a message appears on the screen that reads, This room isn't an illusion and is a trap by Satan. Go ahead dauntlessly, make rapid progress. Sir Arthur is then teleported back to stage one, the cemetery and the player is forced to fight through the entire game once again, but at a now higher difficulty level. Soul-crushing is the description that comes to mind when I see players reach that particular part of the game. It's rough. Now our brave hero, besides his available arsenal, has one more trick up his vambrace, which is his armor. If Sir Arthur is struck by an enemy or an enemy projectile, he is knocked back and loses said armor, leaving him to continue the fight in nothing but his boxer shorts. Of course, if he takes another blow, he loses one of his three lives and will start back at the nearest checkpoint for that level. Thankfully, there are a few spots Sir Arthur can get another set of armor, but more often than not, they are in a hidden spot. For example, in Stage 1, after you defeat the first Red Aramur, you can jump up where you first spotted the foe, and an armor set will appear. Now, if you haven't lost your armor, this won't work. The six stages that make up Ghosts and Goblins are Stage 1, the Cemetery and Forest. Stage 2, the Ice Palace and Town. Stage 3, the Caves. Stage 4, the Fire Bridge. Stage 5, Lower Castle Level. Stage 6, Upper Castle Level. And Stage 7 is the boss battle against Satan or Astaroth itself. By the way, the stages are timed. If you don't complete a stage before the timer runs out, you of course lose a life. The timer for the stages start anywhere from 3 minutes to a minute and 30 seconds. As for the types of enemies that Sir Arthur will face on his quest, and there are quite a few of them, we have zombies, which are located in stages 1 and stages 3. 
one hit is all it takes to dispatch them, and it will net you 200 points. Zombies also carry clay pots with them, which is how you will find weapons and other items to increase your score. Those other items that can be revealed from the broken pots are dolls, and even items belonging to Princess Prinprin, which can be worth big points. They go in a cycle, where the first pot you break will reveal a doll, then a weapon, a doll again, then an item belonging to the princess, a doll once more, a weapon, and then a doll yet again, and that cycle just continues on and on. Back to the enemies, we then have the eyeball plants. Being plants, they are green and appear to have a large mouth filled with sharp teeth. They earn their name by spitting out eyeball-like projectiles towards Sir Arthur. They are only worth 100 points and are destroyed with one hit. Then there are the two types of crows you will have to face. In stage 1, there is the blue-hued crow that will fly in a straight line at Sir Arthur. Defeating any crow will gain you 100 points, and they take a single hit to destroy. On stage 2, you will encounter the red-colored crows, which are quite a bit more dangerous, as besides launching forwards towards you, they take wing and dive at you diagonally as well. Another foe that Sir Arthur will face is the Magician, though to me they match the description of the Tengu of Japanese folklore. They are bird-like humanoids who can appear, but only when Sir Arthur has struck a tombstone, say, in stage 1, or a rock in stage 3, 15 times in a row. The magician will spread its wings, throwing a spell that if it hits our hero, will turn him into a frog, rendering Sir Arthur defenseless for a short time. I'm pretty positive that I've seen one of the players at Arcadia Retrocade show us that you can be turned into another animal form, but I'm not 100% positive I'm remembering that correctly, so don't bet the farm on that statement. The magician can be defeated with a single hit, and will earn you 2,000 points, but be warned, it's hard to avoid the spell it shoots at you. Then we have the incredibly annoying wraiths. These are robe-wearing beasties that fly through the air, always ready to throw a spear at you or down on your head. In my case, generally when I'm making an important jump across a chasm. They can be found in stages 1, 3, 5, and 6, and are worth 1,000 points, and thankfully only take a single hit of Sir Arthur's weapon to destroy, and they too are able to leave behind clay pots. Next we have the Flying Knights, which are spectral beings that, as they travel across the screen, move up and down in a row, forcing the player to use some fancy jumping and shooting to earn their 100-point prize. What makes this rather difficult is they carry a shield, so you have to hit them from the rear to slay them. The blue imps are small dangers that can be located in stages 2, 4, and 5. They fly all over the screen and can hit you with fireballs from above, but are easily destroyed with a single hit, netting you a mere 100 points, but they too can also carry clay pots. Then we have the little devils, which can be found in stages 2 and 3. These beasties will land on the ground and even give chase to Sir Arthur. They can be dispatched with a single hit, and might also be carrying those clay pots. In stages 3 and 5, Sir Arthur will have to deal with bats, which swoop down in groups, keeping them in the air just a little over the knight's head, basically preventing him from jumping up, which can be a problem when zombies are coming up out of the ground under your feet. They can be taken out with one hit and are worth only 100 points. Acting a little like the eyeball plants, we have the monster towers, which kind of resemble a stalagmite until you approach them and they reveal either one or two monster faces in their stone that will spit out a fireball towards Sir Arthur. 
It takes four hits to destroy a monster tower, but is only worth 100 points. We also have skeletons that you encounter in stages 5 and 6. The good news is you can destroy them before they make their appearance. When you see them, they will look just like skulls on the ground. You can pull down on the joystick so Sir Arthur ducks and can throw your weapon to destroy them with one hit each and claim your 100 points. If you get too close though, they will jump out of the ground and then start to hop about in an effort to get at you. There is another type of flying enemy called the Red Aramur that when met will leap from the ground and take to the air. They are also capable of shooting fireballs at you and have no issue dive bombing into Sir Arthur. They are worth 1,000 points and are also able to carry clay pots, but do take three hits to destroy. Also, if you're thinking about taking your time in combating the Red Aramur, think again because if 50 seconds pass, and remember your stages are timed, and you are still fighting the same one, it will turn white and become very aggressive. By the way, this enemy type was so popular in Japan that it gained its own game, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast. That was Gargoyle's Quest for the Game Boy, which was entitled Red Aramur Demon World Village Side Story in Japan. The character is of course a hero in this game, and would also star in Gargoyle's Quest 2 for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and Demon's Crest for the Super Nintendo. The last of what I would describe as normal enemies is the Ogre, and these brutes are just bad news. It's hard not to get a little nervous when you see them stomping towards you in stages 2, 5, and 6, even if they do have a heart tattoo on their arm. You have to hit them 10 times in a row to defeat them and earn 500 points, and possibly the clay pot they might be carrying. They have a bad tendency to hang around the ladders you need to use and can hurl a ball and chain at you. They can even do this when they are on the level above you, so you generally have to watch out while you're trying to fight off anything that's on the same level as you that a ball and chain doesn't come down on your head from up above. Then we have those generals, or bosses, that guard the gates to the next stage. When you manage to reach the end of stage 1, you would be confronted by a horned cyclops, or as he is sometimes called, a unicorn. They are able to shoot fireballs and will also leap high into the air to come crashing down to the ground. They can also perform a bull rush at Sir Arthur that's very hard to avoid. You will have to hit them a total of 10 times to net 2,000 points and possibly a clay pot. When you reach the end of stage 2, you will have to take on two of those Cyclops at the same time. The guardians of stage 3 and forest gates happen to be dragons. They are snake-like in appearance and fire a small cluster of fireballs at Sir Arthur as they fly through the air. The player can chip away at the segment of the dragon's body for 200 points each hit, but the head is the real threat and needs six hits to be destroyed and will earn you 1,000 points, plus the 200 points for any of the dragon's body that still remains. So it's best just to go for that head. Not so easy though, when the dragon can change its flight path to start diving straight down on Sir Arthur. You will also encounter a dragon in stage six. At the end of stage five, the guardian of the gate is a messenger of Satan. These guys are pretty tough. When they wrap their wings around themselves, your attacks will simply bounce off and their flying patterns are a little similar to the red armor. They also appear to be flinging shuriken at Sir Arthur as they dart around the screen. It takes six hits to defeat a messenger, and that will give you a hefty 3,000 points. At the end of stage six, you will have to face down two of the messengers to get through the gate. Ugh, these guys are probably the worst. Now in stage seven, both times, you've reached the tower of Astaroth's castle, and of course we'll have to take down Satan or Astaroth itself. 
a giant of a boss that spits fireballs at Sir Arthur from both of his faces, his head, and the face located in his chest. The player can only damage him if their attack hits squarely in the lower face, and will take 10 direct hits with the shield to defeat him, but that will net you a whopping 10,000 points, and on your second playthrough, will win Princess Prinprin's freedom which allows you to witness the two reunite as Sir Arthur pumps a fist into the air as hearts rise above the couple, plus the message that reads, Congratulation! This story is Happy End. Now, the world record holder for points for ghosting goblins is David Nelson, who amassed 1,100,000 points on November 15, 2007, and was verified by a Twin Galaxies referee. At the Arcadia Retrocade, it is Henry Holder who earned the high score crown, although due to an unfortunate power outage, we didn't get the exact score written down. It was definitely in the neighborhood of around 700,000. While it's a shame we didn't get that exact score, Henry is the only player at the arcade to have ever made it through that second quest to win Princess Prinprin's freedom. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Mori and Fujita truly did craft a memorable soundtrack to the game. Take Arthur's theme, for example. I've caught myself humming it as I walk the floor at Arcadia Retrocade quite a bit. Of course, the popularity of Ghosts and Goblins led to the 1988 arcade sequel entitled Ghouls and Ghosts, but also saw home ports on many of the popular gaming systems and computers of the day, like the Commodore 64 and Amiga, as well as the Commodore 16, the Amstrad CPC, ZX Spectrum, Atari ST, MSX Computers, IBM's PCs, and the Game Boy Color and Advance. And, of course, as I previously mentioned, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Arcadia will be right back after these messages. Genesis brings you the 16-bit arcade challenge with Ghostbusters. 16-bit thrills in Ghouls and Ghosts. 16-bit arcade action with Forgotten Worlds. Gruesome ghosts, ferocious foes, battles of power, of magic and might, ghouls and ghosts, ghostbusters, and Forgotten Worlds are for the Genesis system. Sega Genesis brings the arcade experience home. Go 
with Strider, Spider-Man, just two hot names of the games, games, games. Sega Genesis systems and games sold separately, available at these fine stores. The Ghosts and Goblins series has continued with updates and spin-offs for all manner of home consoles, like 1991's Super Ghouls and Ghosts and 2006's Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins. There was 2002's Maximo Ghost to Glory, which was set in the same gaming universe, and its 2004 sequel, Maximo Army of Zen. Sir Arthur is still seen now and again, just recently making an appearance in 2011's Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 beat-em-up game. Now, Shay added Ghosts and Goblins to the Arcadia Retrocade collection about a year after he'd first opened the doors. It shares floor space with Golden Axe to its right and the real Ghostbusters to its left. Kind of appropriate, I suppose, after listening to that first Genesis ad, right? Here is something I found interesting, friends. Our arcade marquee for Ghosts and Goblins lists Taito as being the distributor for the game, although we do possess a second marquee with only Capcom getting the credit. I've not been able to locate anything online that mentions this nor the numbers or dates when Taito was distributing the game to arcades. So if you know anything, please do leave a comment on the podcast post on the Retroist, or contact me by email at vicsage at retroist.com. I think that about wraps up our podcast for this go-around. Normally, I would ask you to tune in on Wednesdays for the Diary of an Arcade Employee vidcast on You Now. But over the last few weeks, I've experienced broadcasting issues with that app as well as Periscope. So, from now on, I will record my shift at the Arcadia Retrocade, edit it, and then either upload it on YouTube or Facebook. I apologize about the lack of a live feed, but I promise you'll still get to enjoy the sights and sounds of a fully thriving arcade as always. Our ending theme, which is entitled River Raid, was composed by the extremely talented Tony Longworth. You can listen to even more of his music on SoundCloud and on his official site, which you can reach at www.tonylongworth.com. If you have any feedback for the show or perhaps a suggestion for a game to cover, as I mentioned before, you can reach me at vicsage at retros.com. Diary of an Arcade Employee is available for download on iTunes, so if you have a moment, I would really appreciate it if you could stop by and give us a positive review. It certainly helps to get the word out to new listeners. For further information about the Arcadia Retrocade, please make sure to follow them over on their Facebook page. I'll be sure to provide a link on the Retroist post. Of course, I want to give a huge thanks to the Retroist for not just hosting this podcast, but for allowing me to record in the Retroist vault. And when you need your daily retro fix, why not visit the Retroist site at www.retroist.com. I certainly hope you listeners will also share your memories of arcades and the games of the week in the comment section of the podcast post. Better yet, I hope you'll be able to share some vintage photos of your favorite arcades. We're going to have something of a special episode next week for the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. Let's see if this audio clip gives you a clue. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye, and we hope to see you next time.